Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned into another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, my friend? Thank you for joining me here on the Paul Leslie Hour. So I was hiding out in Kansas and in Missouri, the Midwest, as you might say, for a while, living out there in splendid isolation, farmlands all around, and I finally had a chance to see a movie. I realized it came out in 2016. As always, I'm late to the party. Loving, which is based on the true story of Richard and Mildred Loving. They were plaintiffs in a U.S. Supreme Court case that you're going to hear referenced in this upcoming interview. This is an interview with Hamilton Sage. In the interview here, he goes by Hamilton Graziano, but it's Hamilton Sage and Ingrid Ali. And they're a great couple. They're a married couple. They're also poets. They're actors. This originally broadcast on FM radio in Charleston, South Carolina, a few years back. And it has not been on the podcast, although I have had Hamilton and Ingrid on the podcast individually. But this is my first interview where I talk to them together. They perform some spoken word poetry pieces, which is really nice. And I remember the day that we did this interview. It was a, a very emotional experience recording this. It really, really touched me. Yeah, how about that? Do you remember when you would go and meet people and see them face to face? I wish I could see Hamilton and Ingrid these days, but uh, this interview is a fond memory, and I hope to share it with you all. Let me know what you think. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's a pleasure to be sitting down with these two. I think it's safe to say that they're artists. I want you all to meet Ingrid and Hamilton. Thanks Hello. for being here. Hello. Thanks, Thank you, Paul. Paul. So happy to be here. This is really exciting. Yeah, it's great to have you all. So it's Hamilton Graziano. Yes. And Ingrid Ali. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Two L's. Two L's, okay. <laughs> so what does that mean, an artist? To me, an artist is someone who is uh, who has the courage to express themselves in a way that is unafraid, I guess, being judged for that and, and with like a desire to maybe get a message out, uh, make an impact or inspire people with what they do, whether that's visual art, performance, dance, singing. I think all art speaks to people in a way that kind of gets to the heart of, of what is true without, in a way that's easier than maybe regular conversation might be or can open the, it can open the door for a conversation in a lot gentler way where people can be exposed to something without feeling challenged in their views. And I think art is also a really great way to share your perspective. I do think that art a lot of times isn't recognized for its greatness or its power or its beauty until after the person who created it is gone. Not always, but I think it's, that's an interesting thing in our culture that tends to happen is that Art at the moment it's created may often be seen as out of place or revolutionary in a way that's not ready to be accepted. And then it, the art seems to be a step ahead a lot of times of, of the times, or as they say, art imitating life may be a little bit early. So art is a great way to look and see the direction we might be headed. Yeah. I think there's something timeless about, I think, uh, a lot of artists have this sensation of like whatever they're creating coming through them and they're just kind of almost acting as a vessel and there's not so much of like a, a personal creative push in there. It's like, it's like almost like they have to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you're in that kind of creative zone, you're accessing something that is very much beyond you and possibly beyond time in a way that like you might not even know why you're creating it until 
years and years later. And it's like, oh, that's why I made that. And it becomes more relevant way beyond what you even knew what you were doing at the time. That's always something that's fascinating to me. Yeah, I've definitely had that experience. Maybe not years and years later, but even months later. You write a poem, for example, and something happens in the world. And suddenly your poem has an even deeper meaning than you knew it had when you wrote it. Mm-hmm. Right. The primary means, we've, we touched a little bit on poetry, but you're both actors. Mm-hmm. Yes. Would you say that there's, a, there's something you're more passionate about? Is it the poetry or is it the acting? I well, think I know what you're asking. <laughs> Hamilton me. knows for me. I mean, I, I definitely, acting is my heart. That's, that's always just called to me in such a deep way from a young age. But I actually, in fairness as well, wasn't introduced to spoken word really in, in, a, in a meaningful way until I met Hamilton and I met. And I kind of got him into acting. So spoken word was a fairly new world for me. Whereas writing, though, was also something I'd always done. It was very natural. I, I tell people like journaling, I believe, saved my life, <laughs> literally. When I went through my dark night of the soul, my depression, things like that. I mean, really writing was, was a savior for me. So it was kind of a natural transition where Hamilton had seen some of my journals and was like, hey, do you, you, know, do you write poetry? You know, when we first met. And I was like, oh, you know, I, I write, I just write about things. And he really encouraged me when he saw some of the things I was writing. He's like, you need to share this. This is something that would be worth sharing. She had like full notebooks, just full of really brilliant writing. She's like, you know, she's like, oh, yeah, I can write here and there. <laughs> but I don't know, for me, I, I don't really see like the... I think the the lines between acting and poetry, in particular performance poetry, like we do with the spoken word, are very blurred. And I don't necessarily see much of a distinction between the two, personally. I felt like it was a very natural transition coming from like a stage poet into like film and television acting and even like theater acting. There's so many theater elements that we learn as a spoken word poet when you're in the competitive world. But also, it's just at the core, I think both are really just trying to authentically express truth in a way that's almost more real than real life or regular life in a way that is more, I guess, intense than what we're used to doing, I guess, maybe not in all cultures worldwide, but in like the culture that we live in, it's not normal to like really stare someone in the eyes and just rip your chest open and just really reveal your heart and, mm-hmm. and what's really like at the core and uh i think that poetry and acting demand that in a way and like the most that. compelling performances are people that are, are just willing to just go there and do that and that raw vulnerability is what is attractive about both yeah, and I would like to add, like, Hamilton is a really great actor. And I think part of what was made that transition so easy, and he said this really eloquently at one point, because he encourages actors to do spoken word. But if you can tell your own story with vulnerability and truth, then when you're slipping into a character as an actor, it makes it that much easier. I mean, you always want to bring your own truth, I think, to any character that you're playing. But when you've already been able to get up on a stage in front of, you know, maybe hundreds of people and be vulnerable and tell your own genuine story. That's such a, such a welcoming transition into being an actor. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I've seen, you know, I think that's a great, that's a great idea to bring that to actors to really encourage them to be vulnerable. I think all of the best actors we admire have that vulnerability about them. Hmm. It's very attractive. Such as? Uh, Jessica Chastain, for example. I think she's a great example. She always comes to mind. It's it, especially women who are able to bring that vulnerability to their work. Viola Davis. I mean, if you saw Fences, you could see that. It's so it's like this. There's strength there, but underneath there's also this, like you're saying, this openness. Yeah. It's like they're ripped open and strong at the same time. And and there's something. Not all actors have that, or at least to that degree. But when it's there, it's really something yeah, special. I mean, you mentioned Fences. I mean. Viola Davis and Denzel. I mean, Denzel has this very big, braggadocious, very loud and powerful character, but at, at his core, he's a very vulnerable character and is, and is something that a lot of people can really connect to because it's like you see his insecurity that's really at the heart of his 
this big persona that he puts on. And, you know, I, I think that's what makes those kind of performances like Academy worthy is that, that underlying, like just vulnerability that really connects with everyone. Like everyone understands that type of. Yeah. It, I have the one poem, poem that I wrote called acceptance speech. And it's, it's a kind of like a, example of a speech I might give if I were to win the Academy Award. But I have a line that says that um, actors are healers, daring to experience the heights and depths of human emotions that most of us avoid at all costs. Actors willingly step into the role of feeling the most intense emotions that many of us are afraid to feel, which was very a great example in Fences. You know, you have a, a, a guy who who's, has a lot of pain and hurts and disappointments from his past, but puts on this persona of, of protection for himself and to just survive. I think it's a great service that actors do. I do think it's important and I respect that a lot. I don't want to say I take it seriously, but I do. <laughs> I do in a sense. I think you should take it seriously. I think if you're stepping into that line, this line of work and really want to call yourself an actor, I think that it shouldn't be, you know, maybe not all actors take that approach, but I think you'd be doing yourself a service and other people a service to really take that role seriously and really dedicate yourself with integrity to that, that job of like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be a vessel for you know, the heights and depths of right. human emotion. And like, I want to portray that and live that in a way that is real. I don't know. It's this weird, like catch 22 to me in my mind. When I think of acting, it's almost like being realer than real. The best actors to me, it's almost like they're not acting. Like in that moment, they're really there. They're really feeling those emotions. And it's, it's nothing that everybody watching hasn't felt at some time. You can't, you can't act an emotion that everybody doesn't understand on some level. So I think that, I don't know, that was really like when I, when I really understood that that's what acting was, I, I became a lot, I became very interested in it. I'm passionate about both now. Do you two collectively have a favorite movie? Collectively? I don't think so. Well, we love Tree of Life, Terrence Malick's film. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a that's beautiful example of filmmaking and, and I think both of our opinion right we'd agree mm -hmm. on that personally I don't have any like one favorite film I don't think I have a lot of films that I really like and since I've started acting I watch film in a different way I, where I'm really paying attention to what actors are doing and kind of study like with a student's eye like looking at different scenes and when I see something that really hits me and that, that makes me, that impacts me, I find myself like really trying to break down, okay, like what are, what are they doing that made that so powerful? Yeah. I mean, I, I've always had respect for like older films. I love Sidney Poitier, I love his work. I mean, he was an example of an art artist who was ahead of his time in a lot of ways. I mean, he was an actor of color who was doing work that no other black actors were doing. It just, I mean, but I really think that's because of his vision of what being an artist was. He just, that's what he decided. And that's what he was in a time that nobody else was really kind of being able to encompass stories about a black man like he was. I mean, it was fascinating to me. One of my favorite films that's older is um, Gaslight with uh, Ingrid Bergman, which I think, you know, some people know the term to gaslight someone is to make them feel like, they're uncertain of their own reality. <laughs> it's like a manipulation. I think it's become very relevant. The term gaslight has been used a lot recently, but that's definitely one of my favorite <laughs> older films. Excellent. And also my namesake, Ingrid, you know, mm -hmm. Ingrid Bergman. I've always, I've always enjoyed watching her work. I really admire actors that can just sort of become any character and almost become invisible. Like, I really liked Philip Seymour Hoffman because of his range of different roles that he just performed brilliantly. And I really like Leonardo DiCaprio. He's just, his intensity that he brings to every role. He's just got a very 
strong power that he really brings into any role that he's doing. But yeah, I love films that have that sort of emotional strength, emotional drive, but I also like things that have really clever and interesting dialogue. Cold Mountain for me is a movie that always comes to my mind is the dialect in that film and like the way that all the characters talk and it's just really good conversation throughout and great acting throughout. But. I love watching movies with Hamilton because we're like total acting nerds. So, I mean, we might be sitting there and if, if an actor is going in, we'll just be sitting there. I'll be like, you better act, you better act. Like, <laughs> like we're watching a football game. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun though. And, and I agree with Hamilton. You watch films differently. I think when, when you are a performer or even maybe if you're a director or filmmaker, writer, I mean, you're going to watch it in a different way and really appreciate different levels even the way something is filmed for example like i have to mention moonlight we both loved that film that came yeah, out this year it was just stunning a stunning film all around and beautifully filmed beautifully shot and it's you know being recognized across the board which i'm really happy about it's just fun it's fun to to watch movies with them watch television uh or we don't have tv but watch netflix and it's the same way i watch like spoken word at, after coaching the national like college spoken word poetry slams and stuff. I I can't go to an open mic or a poetry slam now and not be like in my head, be like, oh well, you know, maybe we could add these kind of theatrics here. Like I, I'm constantly analyzing performance pieces that I see in spoken word now from like a coach's standpoint. So it's like I think once you just get to become a student of something, it, it really makes you watch it differently. So when you first learn about a character that you're going to play, what's the first thing that you do? For me, I think the first thing I do is just sort of as I'm reading the script, I'm trying to put myself into that person's shoes. I'm trying to find, you know, how, how does this relate to me? What, how, how have I felt this way before? And a lot of times I naturally start thinking of maybe it doesn't connect to me so much, but I might know someone very closely who, who I can just see as this person. And I've always had a, a gift for like sort of imitating people or doing impersonations. And, and so like sometimes I just, I just know someone who's like, this, this is basically like, you know, oh, my buddy. Matt or my buddy Travis, like this, this character is that guy. And so I basically can just like, in knowing that person so well, I can just sort of step into this, this person who, who I know in my personal life. That's for me. I think that's my like first thought process that goes through when I'm looking at a script. I think for me, I think that that is a part of it. Like, you know, when you read a book and, and for me, I'm a very visual person in my head. So I see the whole scene. I see the whole scene playing out in front of me. I, I see what their room looks like when it says they walk into the room and, and, you know, they are, you know, it's different situations. It's a very visual experience for me. I think like having with some of the acting training I've had, I definitely see the value of finding the objective of the character or what drives them basically. Why? why they're doing what they're doing. Why is the story being told? You know, what is the, the underlying thing that they're trying to achieve? There's something driving. There's a reason the story's being told. You know, if you're watching a movie, there's, there's a beginning, middle, and end. And it's like, what is the overall overarching objective for this character to achieve? Because it can help, it can definitely help you define your journey as that character if you know what they're fighting for. And when the script is written well, it's not, it's not spelled out for you in the script. Like what, what that, what's at, at the core of what this person is really trying to get at. And that scene is very seldom like blatant or in the text. And so it's kind of like, I think that's always the fun part of initially reading a script is like reading in between the lines of like, okay, like what, yeah, they're having this conversation about baseball, but like what's really going on in this conversation between these two people. And that's sort of that process of like, okay, what is the objective here? Like what, what does he want to get from this friend of his or his mother or his father at this particular time? Right. While that's they're why talking about something totally different, you know, and why different actors would play the same character in a completely different way. They may have a completely different approach to what is driving 
right. that particular character. And that's what makes it cool. Even with plays, you know, I came up in theater. I, I have deep respect for theater. I love theater. And getting to see uh, the same play done by different directors and different actors, it can be a completely different play. I mean, that's why Shakespeare's still being done now and still being renovated and innovated in so many ways. That's kind of one of the beautiful parts about theater, especially, I think, is you're always going to get a fresh interpretation. Just even with Fences, it's August Wilson, that's classic American theater. And then you have this new interpretation, which I think really did honor the theatrical version. I mean, it really almost was like watching a, a play on screen. But, yeah. you know, what Denzel, Denzel and Viola bring to it is what they bring to it. And, it. and it became this whole new amazing thing. And now it's the number one movie in America, which I think is awesome. And it's a perfect example of something being fresh again with new fresh eyes and new fresh perspectives. We're talking with Ingrid Ali and Hamilton Graziano. What brought you all to Atlanta, Georgia? For me, she she brought me to Atlanta. We had met in Richmond, Virginia. Kind of a, a funny like circumstance. I was about two months away from going to Thailand to teach English. And um, she was about two months away from moving down here. So we were both very much in a space of like making a big transition and um, not really looking for any kind of relationship at all. At all, and um, well, wait, that's not fair. I was definitely look open and looking for a relationship, okay. but not expecting to meet someone well, two wasn't. months before I moved. I was definitely very intentional on wanting to to meet, you know, the one for sure. But I think I had let it go in terms of that having to happen in the two months I was before I was going to move, and surely it didn't seem the most convenient. But I was coming to Atlanta, Atlanta for the thriving film industry that's like booming here. I'm sure. You know, Paul, I mean, mm. there's movie studios and everything being built all the time now. And uh, a vast majority of the films that you see are, are filmed here now. Um, it's the third lar largest film industry in the world, I believe now, which is amazing. So that's what brought me here. And we did have amazing kind of we met synchronicity. In, um, we met through a mutual friend of ours who's sort of like a very close friend, also kind of like mentor figure for both of us. And she facilitates meditation classes and some other workshops in Richmond. And we met in one of her meditations, actually. And um sounds so cheesy, but, like, we've sort of, it like, had cheesy. this moment of, like, <laughs> the they're ending the meditation with, like, a circle and you're asking everyone to make eye contact if you felt comfortable with everyone in the circle. And, like, we didn't really make it all the way around the circle because when we made eye contact, it was just very, like, jarring kind of moment of, like, wait a second, like, I know you. It's like a recognition. Yeah. And the intent of that meditation is to allow yourself to see and be seen. It's very vulnerable. Once again, as an artist, like, we could appreciate that. But he had actually been doing a class that she was doing for weeks already with my parents. So he had known my parents before I knew him. We kind of came together and there's just, just this undeniable connection. And so, you know, after the two months, though, we date and have this, you know, great connection. But we, we go our separate ways and he goes off to Thailand. At that point, I don't think either one of us really knew if we would ever like see each other again, honestly, because I had no plans or thoughts of coming to Atlanta at that time. And I didn't know how long I was going to be in Thailand for. But we ended up just kind of staying in touch while I was over there, yep. reconnecting after about a month. Skype, the magic just, and power of Skype. Yeah. I have much respect Skype, for Skype yeah. as well. <laughs> and Paul, I think, you know, I, I did end up going to visit Thailand and visit uh, Hamilton there, and it was amazing. And we just reconnected. And at some point, it was kind of like, yeah, maybe at, I'll come back to Georgia. At that point, when she, when she came to visit me, I was like, okay, well, maybe there's something. It became something more than just like this very brief and amazing, like, connection and relationship was this person that, you know, I was I was at a place where I was willing to just let it be that and not trying to be, like, attached to something that maybe necessarily wasn't supposed to be long-term, you know. I was just... And I think part of that, us having that brief period of not knowing if we would ever see each other again really allowed us to, like, not have expectations and just really be ourselves and be real with each other in, in the short period of time that we did have there. I think that brought us closer together in a lot of ways. And then, and not only that, it actually birthed our artistry because through kind of a half joke, Twin Soul Poets was born. 
we would write poetry to each other again. So corny, but I mean, we did. We wrote each other poetry and and letters and different kind of musings of life. And through that process, I think Hamilton said, you know, what if we did duo poetry group? He'd be like, Atlanta wouldn't be ready for that, you know, something like that. And it mm-hmm. was just this joke that has actually become this real thing now. I mean, we've performed uh, in a lot of places now. We have some recognition in the poetry community. We won an award for one of our poems, and it's just from just from our like willingness to kind of see where this whole journey would lead, and it's been an amazing journey. We've come together as artists as well. I never imagined that in my relationship I'd also be working with my partner, but it's been and I never fantastic. imagined that we those poems that we were writing back and forth to each other we'd be like sharing them with audiences, you know. Yeah, and putting them together intimate. in a book as well. We're we're working on a book. We've got a proposal drawn up and we've reached out to some other authors who are interested and right now we're trying to get a literary agent you know and trying to look at putting something together for our story because a lot of people have seemed very interested in our story i mean there's lots of little inter- like intricate things that have been mm-hmm. fascinating my dog's name for example our family dog back home's name is hamilton i think you know this he's a little french bulldog he's amazing but i named him you know i want to say a year or two before i even met hamilton and it's just not a common name Maybe it's more known now with, with the musical Hamilton. But um, when I first told him <laughs> that my dog's name was Hamilton, he just had this look on his face like, are you serious? It's so <laughs> weird. And that's just like one of the many weird synchronicities and things about our relationship that just over and over again, it's like, okay, like there's something. Right. There. If you ever needed a sign <laughs> like, that this was right. I mean, we've, we've had hundreds of them. You guys were talking about this, this meditation class mm-hmm. okay and then you were saying that the the teacher was telling you you can look around the room and look directly into someone's eyes and if you're comfortable enough because it, it can be intimidating mm-hmm. to do that a lot of people are afraid of doing that but you two you you were doing this and do you, did you feel completely comfortable looking into each other's eyes like that yeah yeah what did you see i don't even know <laughs> i saw I saw you, and it was this person that I'd never met before, but it was an overwhelming feeling of recognition on a very deep level, like, almost like, that's my best friend, that's my, like, lover, that's my, like, like I, I know this person better than I know, almost like myself, in a way. Yeah, like, that's it, what I was going to say. I felt like I was seeing me in, in a kind of, maybe this is getting very deep or something but i mean it did feel deep and it and it felt it was almost more like more so than what i saw is what i felt and it felt familiar like it felt like this familiarity and this excitement and this like homecoming all in one moment and i think it's worth saying that like she was actually teaching a class on creating positive relationships and nonviolent communication so the class that she does before all the meditation she was doing was about creating great relationships, whether they be, you know, romantic relationship, partnerships at work, family. So it's learning how to use communication to, she basically says that everybody has the same needs, but the ways of achieving them are different. And that's what causes conflict. So bringing awareness to that. And and awareness to the balance of masculine and feminine energies, not just in male and female interaction, not just in gender, but like the masculine feminine that exists inside of each person. Like I have, I am a man, but I have many feminine traits and those would be more in tune with like my feelings and my creativity and my emotions and things and understanding that dynamic within yourself and within different relationships. It's very, uh, very eye opening relationship. And I think it was, there's definitely something to be said that like that, whole course which we have both studied and been through with her was like at the foundation of us meeting yeah so we've always had this really great foundation of communication between us even if there's like a conflict or something we disagree on or like something hard that we're dealing with our ability to communicate that to each other in a way in general is very Strong. strong and getting better all the time. Not to say we haven't been through some stuff because <laughs> we definitely have and It'll be in the book. <laughs> we wrote poems about it, but I mean, just we have a commitment to grow that's very strong. 
So even when we go through hard things, which we've been through some hard stuff, but the commitment to growth is really sincere and we've talked about that. And I really trust that. And it feels really good knowing that that's at the foundation. And actually just a little interesting side note, the woman who facilitated this, this mutual friend and mentor, both of ours is actually facilitating our wedding in June. So <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind shout of a great full circle. to Denise. Right. Definitely. Denise is her name? Yes. yes. Okay. She's an amazing woman. Well, congratulations, of course. Thank you. Thank you very much. So what do you all think of Atlanta? I enjoy it. I kind of came here on a whim, you know, like I was coming back from Thailand and not really sure what I was going to do moving forward. I, part of me wanted to continue traveling, continue teaching abroad. Pool was too strong. <laughs> yeah, but I was, it was like I knew that I wanted to see her again. I knew I wanted to be with her and... Then I went home to Richmond for a while, and, I was, and then I knew I didn't want to stay in Richmond. <laughs> so it just made sense for me at the time. I was like, well, while I'm figuring things out, I'll come just kind of be close to you in Atlanta. And I was actually volunteering on some farms around the area. But for me, I think Atlanta is very much not what I expected, being a city like in Georgia and in the part of the South that's very progressive. It's, it's so much more like diverse and kind of like forward thinking that I would have thought coming down here. And I don't know. I think it's an exciting place to be right now, especially with all of the uh, film industry really exploding like it is right now. It feels like there's so much opportunity and it's like right on the cusp of something even bigger going on as an artist. That's a really exciting place to be. I thought, I thought Atlanta was going to be warmer than it is. <laughs> I had this, I mean, I am, I don't like being cold. It's just not my thing. So like I thought moving further south, cause we're from Virginia, you know, was going to be warmer. I mean, I knew the seasons would happen, but it just, it still gets pretty cold. It's pretty much very similar weather to Richmond, Virginia, where we're from. Actually very similar. It almost in a lot of ways, it's like a larger Richmond. So Richmond is a very cool city. I think if Richmond had the same opportunities that Atlanta does or had the same kind of explosion in the film industry, I probably would have stayed there. I mean, it's a great city, but it just didn't have that for me as an artist. It just wasn't going to be able to fulfill the opportunities that I was looking for. And that's absolutely what, what brought me here. I think it's interesting that it's very hard to meet a local here. I mean, just the vast majority of people that I meet are from somewhere else, which to me shows that it's definitely very much of a melting pot city. I think there's a lot of history here, which I like. I, I really am fascinated by history. I think that there's a lot of challenges in Atlanta in terms of how the city's going to grow without leaving people behind. That seems to be very much at the forefront. You have that huge stadium that's being built, I think, and there's a lot of concern around that. There's some people who are not for it, just for the reason that it may put people out in terms of costs going up in the area. So I think, you know, like any big city, it's got its challenges. It's somewhere for like, traffic is crazy. Everyone knows that. Yeah, Atlanta traffic is insane. But it's it's definitely, I mean, we live in Virginia Highland. I really think that's a nice area to be in. It's central. Um, There's a lot going on. There's like a festival every week in Atlanta, which I think is great. Always something to do, even though we're like introverts and have to really uh, (laughs) push ourselves to go and like do things. But when we do, we always appreciate it. And it's there's a lot of interest and a lot of cool things going on. And right now... It's the place to be. What inspires you all? Integrity. I'm so inspired by someone who has personal integrity. I don't know if there's anything that inspires me more than that. And I guess by that, I mean truly does their very best to walk their talk. I try. You know, I'm not perfect, obviously. But that's just, from a young age, that's been deeply important to me. So I'm inspired by people who do that at all costs. You see a lot of artists who do that, who you hear they, you know, a movie comes out, this big hit, but you find out they were working on it for like 20 years to get it made. I don't always think art has to be a struggle. I also want to say that I think it's important to kind of not always subscribe to the starving artist idea. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a whole poem about that as well. But, But I do admire commitment to truth, to self. I think that would be a very powerful way to bring about a lot of the change people are looking for right now and the togetherness is to 
prioritize inner growth first, inner integrity, I don't know how you can expect others to be becoming better if you're not first looking at that within. So that, that's the first thing that came to mind. That inspires me as well. I think that's what has always drawn me to spoken word poetry is that I think more so than any other art form that I've seen, it demands integrity and it demands honesty in a way that I haven't seen in other performance art. And just like in a national competition, usually the people who are scoring the best and who are affecting audiences the most are the people who are just being the most completely unashamedly, most courageously honest, really revealing themselves. That was just from day one before I even knew what spoken word was. And I saw some of the young kids on like Brave New Voices on HBO just performing and doing that. It, It was just, it inspired me really, really intensely. And and I was just kind of hooked on it. I was like, I, I want to I wanna know more about this. I want to go see it. Some of the first open mics that I went to in Richmond when I just started Googling like spoken word, open mics and stuff, I, I just saw some really incredible poets in Richmond doing that and telling their own stories of coming through challenges and, and really hard things in their life, in their personal lives, and also speaking on larger issues in the political world or, or other things, you know, speaking for voices of other people that have been oppressed or sort of had their rights taken from them or something done wrong. And these people may not have a voice to tell their stories, but like these poets were doing it for them. And that was just incredibly inspiring to me. And I think poetry has kind of served that function throughout history as like sort of the voices or the the spark that ignites like fires of, of change when something I think poetry is going to become more in the forefront in our society now when there's a, such a mass amount of people sort of stirring around wanting to do something wanting to change what's going on but not really sure of how to do it I think that's when poetry tends to sort of, those poets sort of step into the forefront in front of those crowds and kind of provide a solution, provide a, a poem that's like sums up what everybody's feeling. And then maybe hopefully, you know, what I always try to do is also not only like highlight what's going on and highlight the issue, but also point everyone in direction of like, maybe this is how we can fix it. Maybe this is what we can do to solve it. It's like the M- the idea of like the MC to move the crowd. It's like there's this huge crowd of you know, all this energy of like wanting to do something. If you really take the job of a poet seriously, it's like, well, how can we move that crowd in a way that's positive and productive rather than just inciting more chaos, you know? I think that's important as an artist if you're going to highlight some kind of pain or problem or need for justice, it is important to also offer a vision for a solution. Because I do think that something that can tend to happen in in the poetry community and other art communities is that you just kind of lay this thing out there, this bleeding thing, and leave it there. And there's there's no direction for how to heal. It's like, you know... You, you know Poets can really, like, you know, I think they do the same thing that actors do, is like, be, almost becoming a vessel for, like, these emotions, and, like, somebody can get up there and really just have that, that rage of, like, you know, if there was, I'm trying to think of a particular piece. Well, it's a, the line in the same poem I'd mentioned earlier, uh, I say that, you know, when you, this is not directly quoting, but when you watch a performer, you get the catharsis that need only be earned by watching them perform. There's something awesome about going to see a film, and especially one that's relevant to the times, and then walking out and feeling a little bit more hopeful or a little lighter or a little more 
compassionate or deeply touched uh, when you walk out of the theater and the world literally looks a little different. I mean, right. I'm sure we've all had that experience. It's like the movie stays with you. And I guess it becomes, like, to me, I, I, at a certain point, I started feeling a sense of responsibility because it's like, if you are on stage in front of people and you're genuinely connecting to some sort of emotion and you, you're sharing that, you're going to be opening the door for everyone in that audience to feel that emotion. And so if you are connecting to this really depressing and sad moment in your life, maybe you've had this poem come out to sort of release something that has been really traumatizing for you and you really go there, like everyone's going to connect to that, whether they have some kind of trauma that's similar to yours or not, everyone understands that kind of pain. So people are going to be in that space with you. And if you don't offer like a way out and just kind of finish your poem and then walk off stage, then everybody's just going to be kind of sitting there feeling in that really down, scary place. And it's like, I think it's a good thing if artists keep that in mind. And, you know, it's not like, I'm not saying that you shouldn't write any down or depressing pieces, but it's like, I think it's always a good thing if you can have a sense of that. And it's like, you, it's like, hopefully, if you're at a stage where you're performing a piece, maybe you've found some sort of healing or some sort of way to cope with whatever you were dealing with at the time. So, well, the poem itself to, is often the healing tool. Yeah, a lot and, of people find when they write a poem that they, they feel like healing has happened from what they're writing about. Because just putting something out there and not keeping it within is, is a great step. And I think also, you know, I think people have the right to write what they want to write about. Maybe an answer to that, too, is that, dialogue. Right. You know, and having a like, community dialogue, talking about what's brought up can be really yeah. powerful as well and important. And exactly what you're saying, like even just the process of someone having the courage to share their story, that's not only healing for them, but it's also healing and cathartic for the people that are watching. And then you're going to come up and say, oh, yeah, I identify with that. I'm going through that, too. That is healing in and of itself. But I guess in like a, on a larger scale, I'm thinking like beyond individual pieces. And I'm looking at like when we start getting into like revolutionary type poems, you know, like a Mary Baraka. And poems that he's talking about, you know, going against the system and sort of highlighting a lot of the things that maybe like a, a government might be doing or something. And it's like, you know, then it becomes like this thing of like, okay, a, a lot of people are aware of like these problems that are going on. And a lot of people are feeling overwhelmed by like, what can I do about it? So like, then maybe it's like, well, is there a solution to be offered? Is there a solution to be offered by this, a poetry or a poem that, and a poet who, who could potentially be, become like a leader, a voice for the people, you know what I mean? I don't know, it's a very like grandiose and romantic view of poetry, I guess, but... <laughs> well, I think I, the one documentary, Nina Simone on Netflix, I thought was excellent. And she says something like, it's the responsibility of the artist to reflect the times. She was kind of, there were a lot of criticisms about her very vocal in her art and in, 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 in public arenas where she was talking about what black people in this country were experiencing. And she wasn't putting a pretty picture on it. She wasn't sugarcoating it in any way. But she felt that as an artist, it was her responsibility to respect or reflect, rather, reflect that experience. And I think now it's, it's respected a lot more. Again, back to what I kind of mentioned in the beginning about artists not necessarily being appreciated until after their time. I think that's a perfect example of that. But it's resonated, and people still respect her work to this day and look at her as not just an artist but an activist in terms of, the, in terms of what she was being in integrity about with herself. Well, guys, is there any piece that maybe you would like to perform? Yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I, think in the spirit, I think poetry and activism at a certain point almost go hand in hand and. um we have a piece called The Lovings, which the film just came out recently, and I think Ruth Nega is up for her Academy Award for that. Mm -hmm. And it's a story of a couple from Virginia, interracial couple, who uh, changed the laws and went to a Supreme Court case 
on uh, interracial marriage and the, the bans on interracial marriage in the United States. I think their story is just a very powerful example, and, and this poem really highlights that at the core of the healing that needs to happen is just like a simple love between people. And I think people get so overwhelmed and anxious when they're feeling like the problems of this country or, or whatever might or problems of racism and bigotry and all these things seem so big. And it's like, what could I possibly do to change that? And like these two people are, are a shining example of like them just being committed to loving each other actually did have a massive change on the country. So, you know, I think that's a powerful reminder. It is. And for us, I mean, we're, when I saw this documentary, we're an interracial couple. I'm a black woman, he's a white man, and we're from Virginia. So I saw this documentary several years ago, and I was like, we have to write this poem. It, was, it didn't even seem like an option. It was one of those examples of when, like, the art, the poem wrote you. Like, <laughs> and the fact their names are the lovings, it's like almost like a poem in and of itself. You know? <laughs> right. So you want to just do it? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Almighty God created the races white, black, yellow, Malay, and red. And he placed them on separate continents. And but for the interference with his arrangement, there would be no cause for such marriages. The fact that he placed them on separate continents proves that he did not intend for the races to mix. Virginia, 1958. The black and white headlines seemed ironic. Lovings arrested for illegal marriage. Who is this colored woman next to you? I'm his wife. The unwitting confession of a crime. Forced from their beds at 2 a.m., the clean white sheets took on a dark new meaning. In direct violation of the Racial Integrity Act, the Lovings went from newlyweds to felons in a matter of seconds. A honeymoon in a holding cell. If love in different shades of melanin makes us felons, then... Where did my crime begin? I remember when we locked eyes for the first time. One day at the racetrack, I pulled my head out from under the hood long enough to catch you staring. When we first met, I didn't like him, you know. He was arrogant. But I got to know him, and he was a very nice person. My heart got to revving loud in that supercharged engine. Ain't no sense even considering race when your heart racing like that. Like there ain't no words for such things. No time to consider them. No time at all, really. Just that my eyes and that roaring heart ready to race down any road that leads to you. I never knew that road would take us to the Supreme Court. Never gave a damn about what people consider to be civil or right. I just love my wife. You just tell them I love my wife. I didn't know that we were breaking any laws. Didn't know that a day trip wedding to Washington would become nine years of trying to get back home. I never imagined I'd be sneaking back to visit my mother for Christmas or that my children would become evidence in a trial. It is not infrequent that the children of intermarried parents are referred to not merely as the children of intermarried parents, but as the victims of intermarried parents or as the martyrs of intermarried parents. Feeling like we might as well have been sentenced when the cinder block walls of D.C. felt like a prison to me. I couldn't stand it, being forced to live a life in the shadows with a man who's Truly the light of my life. I had to do something. I wrote a letter to Mr. Robert Kennedy. I told him that it's the law that's the problem. I don't think it's right. The power of love cannot be underestimated. Their marriage forced any opponents to contradict themselves each time they spoke their last name. In an act of true integrity, two young and ambitious lawyers peel back the laws that protected supremacy, arguing that the dignity of love is a universal right. We have some enemies, but... We have some friends, too. After a nine-year battle, it took only one day for all nine Supreme Court justices to rule unanimously that anti-miscegenation laws were unconstitutional, ending the ban on interracial marriage in 15 other states. This This poem poem is is for for the the lovings who didn't ask for a historic fight for civil rights. But her offhand living room comment proved prophetic. Maybe it'll help others, too. Now, the state motto reads true. Virginia Virginia is for lovers. We're two lovers from Virginia, and we've never had to fight for that. So to Richard and Mildred, may you go on loving one another forever. And for all the trials that you went through, 
Thank you. Thank you. Well, guys, are there any parting words for our listeners? We usually start that poem by just honoring Richard and Mildred Loving. I'd just mm. like to still do that now, just always to kind of give them an acknowledgement because yeah. it really is a beautiful connection to us, and I, I don't know that that can be understated. Thank you. <laughs> I said overstated. I don't know that it can be. Yeah, I mean, truly. It's it's beautiful and and it touches us in a very deep and personal way, mm-hmm. and it's very relevant to our experience now in ways that we we couldn't imagine. But but we hope that even just our standing together on a stage and doing a poem that's not even about race makes a statement, and we hope that our love will will resonate powerfully as well. And if you enjoyed our piece, uh, our website twinsoulpoets dot com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram as Twin Soul Poets. Also it's can always, be reached on email. It's h.i.twinsouls at gmail.com. And we love to hear from anyone who's interested in connecting with us. We love to collaborate and dialogue and connect. And we are looking for a literary agent. Yeah. <laughs> Throw that out there. <laughs> we have a pretty much finished book. Yeah, we just want to share and do our part for helping all of us in a commitment to growth, just like we have together. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we'll grow as a nation and, and as a world. And we just want to be a part of that yeah. to I the best of our ability. It's a very interesting time right now to be an artist, and especially like in, in, in connection with spoken word poetry and stuff. It's like I feel like there's so much to be said and so much progress to be made. And I would like to feel part of that. I'm searching for ways that I can put myself into a position to be part of the solution, but I really hope to be so. Well, thank you. Thank Thank you, you, Paul. It's been awesome. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. Hosted, written, and produced by Paul Leslie. Intro theme song, Alexander's Ragtime Band, written by Irving Berlin, performed by Dan Barrett. Outro scatting G things improvised, performed, and produced by John Goodwin. Until next time. Goodbye.